you have your Bibles with you this morning, you could turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to continue on there in in verses 14 uh, through 29. It will be up on the screen um, behind me if uh, if you need that as well. But uh, you know, you have heard me say this on a number of occasions. You've heard me say that there are many stories um, in the book of Mark, but there is only one message. And what is that, church? Anybody want to kind of just take and shout that out? Anybody have any idea? Oh, come on, come on. That the kingdom of God is at hand. That the kingdom of God is with us here this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you stand with me here today for the the reading of of God's word? Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. I would ask that you would extend a little bit of mercy here this morning because I know that the text is somewhat lengthy, um, but, uh, but let's read the word together. When Jesus, Peter, James, and John approached the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and legal experts were arguing with them. Suddenly the whole crowd caught sight of Jesus. They ran to greet him, overcome with excitement. Jesus asked them, what is it that you are arguing about? Someone from the crowd responded, Teacher, I I brought my son to you, since he has a spirit that doesn't allow him to speak. Wherever it overpowers him, it, it, it throws him into a fit. He foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens up. So I spoke to your disciples to to see if they could throw it out, but they could not. Jesus answered them, You faithless generation. How long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a fit. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been going on? He said, Since he was a child... It has often thrown him into a fire or into water trying to kill him. If you could do anything, help us. Show us compassion. Jesus said to him, if you can do anything, all things are possible for the one who has faith. At that, the boy's father cried out, I have faith, but help my lack of faith. Noticing that the crowd had surged together, Jesus spoke harshly to the unclean spirit, mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. After screaming and shaking the boy horribly, the the spirit came out. The boy seemed to be dead. In fact, several people said that he had died. But Jesus took his hand. Isn't it amazing and how awesome God is a redeeming God? That life can be found in God. But Jesus took his hand, lifted him up, and he arose. After Jesus went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we throw out this spirit? Verse 29, Jesus answered, Throwing this kind of spirit, this kind of spirit out requires prayer. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I'm going to once again, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Because in our text today, there is this narrative that is also found 
in the Synoptic Gospels. It is, it is found in Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verses 14 through 21, and then Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 43. Our text here this morning is a story that, that shares of one's desperate need and a group of disciples' futile attempt to engage ministry. It is in sharp contrast of what we just experienced this last week when we talked about Jesus being on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember? Do you remember where, where Moses was there? The, the one that was chosen by God to, to lead the, the nation of Israel out of, of Egypt, two million plus people? Do you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, not only Moses was there alongside Jesus and, and, and the very Heavenly Father Himself, but, but there was Elijah as well. Elijah, who, whose name means Yahweh is my God. They both stood there in the presence of God and, and with the Messiah, the Anointed One. And then we also looked yesterday, excuse me, this last week where we saw Peter, James, and John standing off at a distance they, they were eyewitnesses to this account. But in this text here this morning, as we look as Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and we, we talked about transfiguration, how this is this theophany, if you will. It's a, it was a visual manifestation of, of humankind, the humankind of God. It reveals the, the power of God coming, the kingdom of God coming to humanity, coming as the, 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 the one that will make things right, the, the rescuer, the, the one who has been sent, the chosen one. See, Jesus has, has come because he's been commissioned by his heavenly Father to do so. God has set in motion this plan from the very beginning of creation to, to do great things. God, from the very beginning of creation, has purposed man to experience and, and do things that we never could have dreamed of or have imagined. And from that, we see where man, we look and we see where man, fallen man, sinful man, has re realized his nakedness and his separation from God. But church, I'm here to say and proclaim once again and remind us, but, but God didn't say that, that because of your sin, because of your brokenness, because of the choices that you've made and the choices that you continue to make, that, that God is going to forget you, that, that God is going to leave you. Matter of fact, God tells us through his scripture, he tells us, and I'm paraphrasing, but, but he says, let's continue on this walk together, but it's going to look a little bit different than what it was initially intended to be. It will not be as it once was, but I'm not going to leave you. I'm willing to walk with you step by step, stride for stride on this journey called life. Author, speaker, pastor Chuck Swindoll says, and I quote, After Adam and Eve chose to disobey God in the garden, the Garden of Eden, the whole world changed as if to mimic the rebellion of the, of the first couple, creation chose to, to go its own way. The world that God created to be our perfect home now is afflicted. It afflicts us with, with misfortune, um, disappointment, hunger, chaos, disease, and the ultimate affront to God's creation, that being death. He continues by saying, because people have chosen to, to sin and continue to choose it frequently, it, it says here that, that, that we face humanly impossible situations. 
But Jesus came to earth so that sin will not have the last word in this cosmic conflict between good and evil. God became one of us and, and now He is here as our advocate. We now have a hope to carry us through and beyond our afflictions. End quote. In our study up to this point, we have seen in, in, in Mark 8, and we'll continue to see it through to, to Mark 10, where, where the writer, that being Mark, is, is presenting to us this extended discourse through the, the, just these two chapters about the nature of the, the kingdom of God and how Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, is bringing what he's bringing, the kingdom that he's bringing into the world. In Mark, as we see here, Oftentimes, in Mark, we see where the religious leaders, the Pharisees, where they continuously are making these strong demands, where they want to see signs. We've seen where Jesus has been out on the hillside. We've seen where Jesus has been in the, in the city thoroughfares. And, and, and every time that, that God moves, every time that Jesus heals, every time that he enacts and engages and represents the kingdom of God, the religious leaders are there to push back and create tension. They want to see signs. They, they want to see proof that this man that calls himself Jesus, the, the son of God, the son of man, that, that he really has the authority that he claims. They want to see signs. If you were to turn back to, to Mark chapter 8, if you have your text there, you could look at verses 11 through 12 where it says that the Pharisees showed up and, and they continue and they began and continue to argue with Jesus to test Him. They asked for a sign from heaven. With an, with an impatient sigh, Jesus said, and I quote, Why does this generation look for a sign? I assure you that no sign will be given to it. I'm not going to play into this being Jesus. I'm not going to play into your schemes. I'm not going to play into your agendas. He was very bold about what the Heavenly Father asked him to do and to be. Pharisees, they wanted to, to, to put Jesus to the test. To get him to prove the source of his authority. They, they were seeking from him a sign. One that was afforded to him through divine sanction. In the Old Testament, a, a, a sign wasn't so much the, the demonstration of one's power as it was proof that he was who he said he was. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the, the prophet says, Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. There will be a young woman pregnant with child. She's about to give birth to a son, and she will call him, she will name him Emmanuel. This is a sign of God's divine authority and how he will send the Messiah into the world in which we reside. In your outline this morning, it's a, it's a very simplified outline, but the first thing there is seeing, hearing, and speaking. In Mark, there is this distinction between a, a miracle and, and a sign. A requisition for a miracle can, can be a legitimate expression of one's faith. For example, when Jairus in, in Mark chapter 5, remember that story when we looked at that in verse 23 specific, where, where Jairus comes and he pleads with Jesus in the marketplace. He pleads with Jesus. It's the same text where the woman 
who, who she had this great faith and, and she crawled on her hands and knees and, and, and reached out and if I could just touch the garment, if I could just touch the hem of Jesus' robe, I know that I will be healed. And this is the same day, this is the same afternoon where this occurred where Jairus comes and he's pleading with Jesus on behalf of his daughter and he says in verse 23 of chapter 5, my daughter is about to die. Please come and place your hands on her so that she can be healed and so that she can live. But such a requisition is illegitimate if it out, if, it, if it rises out of one's unbelief, as that was the case of the Pharisees. See, Jairus was very sincere. He believed that, that his daughter could be healed. He believed that the Christ could go and that, that Christ could do that. The Pharisees are standing back and they're watching and they want signs. They, 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 they have this pride, if you will, in, the, in this group of people, these religious leaders. Three times between Mark chapter 8 through chapter 9, 1, Jesus will discourse, he will talk about, he'll lay it out there about the sacrificial nature of the Son of Man. I've come that you may have life. I come that you may have life eternal. And most importantly, he, he, as the rabbi, he was establishing discipleship, that it wasn't going to end with him, that the church must continue on. And you've heard me say this before, especially this last week, but he came to Peter, Peter, upon this rock, Peter being that his name, upon this rock I will build my church. Throughout the, this section of Scripture are, are the stories of Jesus, His ongoing ministry. We've already seen for a number of weeks now where, where those that are in need come, or He goes to those that, that are in need. We see in these narratives that there's this, these narratives of healing where the blind are receiving sight and, and the deaf can now hear and so on. Dr. Scott Daniels says, and I quote, faith and faithlessness have to do with the ability or the inability to see, hear, and speak properly about the way of the kingdom. He adds, faithlessness is not religionlessness. Did you catch that? We can see as we journey through the Gospel of Mark that there are those who are card-carrying members of an unfaithful generation that are very religious. Faithlessness is the consequence of, of not grasping. Faithlessness is the, is the consequence of not understanding the redemptive power that comes in the very kingdom of God. In our text, we see someone who's desperate. We see this young man who, who is being taken down time and time again through, throughout all of his life, most of his life, with, with, with this evil spirit. And the father comes, and, and the father, in, in a desperate requisition, he, he comes and he says, my son has this great need. So we see a great human need, and then we see a major fail. If you're, if you're tracking with the text here this morning, we see a major fail on the part of the disciples. It really does give us an example, church, of, of the realities of living in a world that is, that is absent from Christ. And I'm just going to be bold here, but, but we, we cannot be a people. We cannot be a people of God without God. We cannot be a nation that proclaims to be a nation of God without God. We cannot leave God over here and then try to journey and try to do life here on our own. We can't flee back when, when there's trouble and there's uncertainties and try to, try to pull God out of his box where we have placed him and then say, God, free us from the things that are going on. We are the ones that have broken covenant. We are the ones that have strayed away. We are the ones that are fleeting from God. We need to go back. We need to go back 
back to the one who created us, to the one who desires to call us beloved, the one that desires to walk with us stride for stride. Anybody in the house can say amen to that here this morning. See, we look at this text and we, we see where the disciples have, have failed this man. They have failed this, his son considerably. The disciples to, to, to whom help could be expected and authority was given failed on that particular afternoon. But, but listen to me when I say this. They had the faculties, they had the resources about them to heal that young man, that requisition that was given to them that particular afternoon. How do we know this? How do I know that? Because if you were to flip back two more chapters to Mark chapter 6 verse 7, you would see where Jesus early on in His ministry, He calls the twelve disciples together. Then it tells, tells us that He sent them out in pairs and He gave them authority over unclean spirits specific. You can't get any more clear than that. And now there's somebody that's saying, you know what? I am, I am desiring that of my son. We are coming and we are saying, help, help, help. And they failed Him miserably. Our text finds that the disciples were powerless. Jesus was one that he was, when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, it tells us that, that while he was there, then this requisition comes. It, it tells us that, that, that he was absent from the disciples for that particular moment or, or the beginning of that occasion. And the disciples were asked to help this young man in need, and they could not. Church, in the absence of Jesus, they must lean. He has prepared them. He continually is taking them into the classroom. But they should have leaned into and worked by faith. Now, an application here for us in our own lives. When things get really, really difficult... And we talked about this in the past, but sometimes we get really furious with God. We get mad at God. We, we don't understand. God, we want the tangible. God, we want to understand clearly. We want to wrap our eyes and our minds around this. But Jesus said, it won't always be that way. Oh, those that believe that have not seen. Those that, that believe that I am with them and that I care for them, that I will never leave them or forsake them. Oh, those are the ones that are blessed that, that really have that faith. And the disciples that particular afternoon, they, they, they were forgetting about the examples that they had been given. The feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000. And just recently, the, the man that Jesus took out of the, of the city so he could have one-on-one -on -one and so that, that he could help that man so that he could see that he could receive his sight. Someone said, and I quote, When the Bible says, do not lean on your own understanding, the Bible is serious. Someone said, when the Bible says, do not lean on your own understanding, your heart is deceitful. Your emotions fluctuate. Your understanding does not see the overall big picture. God never lies. God never changes. God knows all. Trust Him. Romans 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, says this, It's news I'm most proud to proclaim. This extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who, who trusts Him, starting with the Jews and then right on to everyone else. God's way of putting people right shows up in the acts of faith, confirming what Scripture has said all along. The person in right standing before God by trusting Him really, truly lives. In Hebrews chapter 11, we, we know that as, the, as the, the, the Bible's hall of fame. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, faith is the reality of what we hope for, 
The, the proof of what we don't see. The elders in the past were approved because they showed faith. Oh, Moses had faith. Oh, Abraham, the faith of Abraham, and so on. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by a word from God so that the visible came into existence from the invisible. Church, we can never forget the movement of God. What He has done in our lives and the significance of it. But the enemy would love to have us be a forgetful people. By the grace of God, by the, by the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, we must take hold of that which He has done for us in the past and acknowledge that, that He is here and now in the present and into the days that, that lie ahead. We must take that and we must believe that. Oh, the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All that I have needed, Thy hand hath provided Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and peace that endureth. Thine own presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. We can't forget the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and what he has done and continues to do in our lives. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Just make sure that you stay alert. Keep close watch over yourselves. Don't forget anything of what you've seen. Don't let your heart wander off. Stay vigilant as long as you live. Teach what you've seen and heard to your children and your grandchildren. Church, this morning you may have never have stood on the, on the beaches, on the, on the edge of, of the Red Sea. Maybe you've never been there with two million plus people and you hear the, the hooves and the, 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 the grinding wheels of, of Pharaoh as he's coming to, to wipe out an entire nation. Maybe you've never been there. But yet there's a man by the name of Moses at that river's edge knowing that there's water in front and, and that there's an army coming behind them and he prays out and he cries out to God. And, and the whole community of people probably do a 180 and they see the dust cloud coming and they're crying out and they're thinking that this could be the end. But then all of a sudden they start to hear the waters turn and they turn back around and the water is starting to part and God says, Moses, lead the people through the water. Lead them through the other side. And I love this. It, it just in the arena of my mind. But the ground was dry and the people went from one water's edge to the other and then it tells us that Pharaoh and his chariots and his armies were caught up and they drowned in the water. We can't forget that. But yet, even in Scripture in the Old Testament, God comes to Moses and says, I have done so many things for you. I've done so many things for this nation and yet they're forgetting to tell the stories. Tell the stories. And sometimes we ourselves, when, when, when we get into a hard between a rock and a hard place, if you will, when there's struggle and all of these things, all of a sudden the enemy's like, I, I want you to forget about the goodness of God and what God has done in your life, and, and I want you to feel like you're isolated, that you're the only one that's going through this, and that nobody cares, that God doesn't care. But church, we need to testify, we need to rise up, and we need to tell others about the goodness of God, and we need to remind ourselves. And I say all of that because the disciples had experienced so much up to this point, and now they're being requisitioned to do the very thing that, that they've been groomed to do, the thing that they've been discipled to do, and they failed miserably. Why? Because they took the, the, the whole thing into their own hands, and they forgot about the lordship of God. They, they, they forgot about the things that they, that they were being taught. You have seen, you have heard of the goodness of God. 
Church, it's time for us to, 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 to speak of it, to testify about it. Second point there in your outline, the disciples could not cast out the demon. Look at verses 14 through 15. When Jesus, Peter, James, and John approached the other disciples, they, they saw this large crowd surrounding them and legal experts were arguing with them. Suddenly the whole crowd caught sight of Jesus and they ran to greet Him. They, they were overcome with excitement. We have seen time and time again through our study through the book of Mark that, that each time that, that Jesus moves in obedience, that, that each time that, that, that He represents the, the kingdom of God, His heavenly Father, we see that, that the relentless enemy is always on the scene to face Him with, with evil, to, to rise up and to face Him with evil. As Jesus makes His way from the mountain, he, he, he is, it says this in my, in my notes, but He is being confirmed and was confirmed by the Father, and now evil once again is present. Look at verse 18. It overpowers Him. It throws Him into a fit, the Father responds. He foams at the mouth. He grinds His teeth and stiffens up. Look at the last part of that verse of 18. So I spoke to your disciples, this being the father of the son. I spoke to your disciples to see if they could throw it out, but they couldn't. We've already mentioned that the disciples were given authority to cast out demons for Mark chapter 6, right? So why is it that they were failing considerably? Why is it that they weren't able to, to heal this young man and meet this father's requisition? You're taking notes this morning, but please make note of this. But most scholarship believes that the disciples... The disciples' inability to, to free the, the young man of evil spirits was, was due to the demands of the religious leaders to, to perform a miracle, to, to perform a miraculous sign. In other words, the, the disciples had somehow, some way, on that particular afternoon, they, they were more poised to try to appease the demands of, of the religious leaders than they were to, to, to serve the Christ, to serve the Heavenly Father, to be about kingdom-building business. And we look at that and we say, how could they do that? I mean, I mean here, here they, they have been an audience of Jesus and they've seen Him do some incredible things. But let me just ask you this question, just kind of throw it out. But how is it that when we see God move in our own lives and, and when we see great and incredible things, how, how is it sometimes we still continue to, to, to make poor choices? Why is it that, that there's, th and, and I just want to say this, but peer pressure isn't just for middle schoolers. It, it just isn't. As adults, why is it that we become so concerned about what somebody else thinks about us than, than what God is desiring of us and what God thinks about us? There was this pressure that afternoon that, that we've got to heal. There's this pressure that afternoon that, that we can do this. And there was this probably this whole thing about conceit and pride and all of that. And, and the Pharisees and Jesus even told the disciples... Just, just moments, probably just a few events before this particular text, he warned them, do not allow the yeast of the Pharisees to infiltrate your hearts and your minds and your lives. And guess what happened? It's starting to happen. The Pharisees were having more influence over them than Christ. In your notes there, in your notes there, it also says, help me in my unbelief. N.T. Wright says, our eye is, is led to the man at the center of this fuss. As in several other stories, this is a, a parent that, that is desperate with anxiety. Anxiety over his child. 
Are we supposed to, to perhaps to see in these stories a reflection of the grieving love of a father that he has for his child? Is this ironically, is this a, a metaphor for, for Jesus and for, for God the Heavenly Father as they weep over the brokenness of the nation of Israel? For his image bearing daughters and sons throughout the world? That would be you and I. For his unique son, Jesus himself, as he obediently gives, and then he stands mute before his captors to then receive a certain death. Church, the, the, this scene in, in, this, in this text, is, it's tense. In the earlier chapters, we've seen where people come to Jesus with, 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 with many Many affirmities, and, 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 and some, it may even seem that, that, that it's, it's an easier act of faith. They touch Jesus, and, and then there's this healing. But, but this father, for this father on this given afternoon, it's tough. I mean, look at verse 24. The father cries out, I have faith, but help my lack of faith. Have you ever cried that before? God, I believe. God, I believe, but I, I'm just really struggling here. God, I really believe in you, but, but man, I just, I, I just need some help. I just don't, I don't understand. Am I the only one that's ever prayed that or ever cried that out before? I look at this and the father's being brutal, brutally honest. Think about it. He, he's brought his son to the disciples for help. Due to their failure, he, he has in, in the back of his mind, maybe he's thinking, can, can Jesus manage this? Can, can Jesus make this work? Look at verse 22. If you can do anything, the Father tells Jesus, if you could do anything, help us. Show us compassion. Church, Mark has been, been telling us all along that, that things will be difficult. But he has emphasized over and over that in Christ, listen to this, if there's the only thing that you get here this morning, but Mark has been emphasizing over and over again that in Christ, all things are possible. Church, in Christ, all things are possible. Church, in Christ, all things are possible. Jesus has come to take up his cross. He's come to be faithful and, and, and to usher in the kingdom, God's kingdom, not a man-made kingdom. Church, let, let's just be real for a moment, but we come to Jesus. We come to Jesus, as my dear friend, um, Dr. Scott Daniels says, with, with both trust and doubt, with both despair and hope, with both kingdom insight and, and then kingdom ignorance. These words, help me in my unbelief, summarizes the, 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 even the faith of the disciples. Can you imagine? There they are, they're working through the motions They've seen Jesus do this time and time again. And then he's commissioned them to go and do that. But can I just share that we have to be really careful that we don't become a people that we just kind of get into this rhythm. That we just say that I'll just read something real quick and then I'll go into my day. And I'll say a few prayers and I'll finish out my day. Church, it's got to be a mindset and it's got to be heartfelt for God to move in each of our lives and to be uh, receptive of the things that He's speaking into our lives. Turn back to, to Mark chapter 8, verse 22, where the blind man is healed. Jesus and His disciples, they came to Bethsaida. Some brought a blind man to Jesus and begged Him to, to touch and to heal him. Taking the blind man's hand, Jesus led him out of the village. And we talked about this. After spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on the man, he asked him, do you see anything? 
And the man looked up and he said, I, I see people, they, they look like trees, only they're walking around. And then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes once again. He looked with his eyes wide open. His sight was restored and he could see everything clearly. The disciples in this situation is, is, is kind of like that blind man. They're in need of another touch. They understand that Jesus has come to establish the kingdom and will set people free from their bondage, but, but yet at the same time they're falling prey to the same motives that represent the yeast of the religious leaders. Someone said, and I quote, faith sets no limits on God's power and submits itself to His will. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence that we have in our relationship with God. If, if we ask for anything in agreement with His will, He listens to us. Look at verse 25 through 27 in our text. Noticing the crowd had surged together, Jesus spoke harshly to the unclean spirit. Mute and deaf spirit, I command you, I command you in, in, in the name of my heavenly Father to come out and never enter this man again. After screaming and shaking the boy horribly, the spirit came out. The boy seemed to be dead. In fact, several people said that he had died. But Jesus took his hand, lifted him up, and he arose. There's power in the blood of Christ. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the heavenly Father. The boy's demon left him and, totally, and left him totally incapacitated. He was mute and deaf, which, which ironically was, was a representation of the disciples at that given moment. They were dead to the very teachings of Jesus. Once again, they were trying to handle the situation from a human point of view. Look at verse 19 again. Jesus answered them, You faithless generation, you faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I have to put up with you? Then lastly, in your notes there, only through prayer. Only through prayer. Richard Foster, in his book, Prayer, Finding the Hearts a, a, a True Home, talks about the prayer of examine. And he says this, he shares two aspects regarding this particular example of prayer. And its relevance in each of our lives. Don't miss this. The first part of the, of the prayer of examine is that of consciousness. Though we discover how God has been present, it helps us to, to understand how God has been present throughout the day, how He's been present in our lives, how we respond to His loving presence. We prayerfully reflect on thoughts and feelings and actions to see how God has been at work amongst us and how we have responded. Then secondly, this, this prayer of examine, he, he talks about the, the prayer of conscience. So there's the consciousness of God, His presence in our life, and then the conscience, the, the, the Holy Spirit, if you will. We are inviting the Lord to search our hearts to the very depths, to the, to the very core of our being. From being, from being dreadful, this is, this is the, a scrutiny of love. We boldly speak of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139 in verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thought and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're coming and we're saying, God, we want to bear ourselves open to you. God, what is, is it that you want to say to us? We want to be conscious of, of, of your presence, but we also, Lord, in, in our conscience, are we blowing it? 
Where are, we, where, are we, where, where are we not living up to the things that you called us to be and do in our life? Foster says, he continues, without apology and without defense, we ask to see what is truly in us. It is for our own sake that we ask these things. It is for our good, for our healing, for our happiness. The prayer of conscience is, is the means that God uses to make us aware of our surroundings. That God wants us to, to, to be present where we are. He invites us to see and, and, and to be around us and, and to hear what is in us and through us to discern the footprints of the holy God. It's unlikely that, that the disciples forgot how to pray. It's very unlikely. And maybe on that afternoon, that particular occasion, that the disciples were, were laying hands and, and that they were, they were praying for him. But it's one thing to get caught up in seeking the approval of man, distraction, or to, to succumb to, to the presence of the crowd and totally lose the ability to do kingdom purpose, the things that they've been called to do, to stand in the gap and intentionally make a connection with the Spirit of God. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, One day Jesus was found praying by his disciples, and, and, and when he finished, one of the disciples asked, Master, can, can you teach us to pray just as John has taught his disciples? And so Jesus responded and he said this, When you pray, say, Father, acknowledge him. Then reveal who you are to, to, to be that one of conscience. Who you are, the good, the bad, the ugly, stuff that, that we, we allow or put into our lives, the, the choices that we make. Then he says this, set the world right. Keep us alive. He, he says, ask the Lord to keep us alive, to, to, to share with us and to provide for us meals. Keep us forgiven with you and, and forgiving others and keep us safe from ourselves and from the, the devil, the enemy. Lamar Williamson says, Jesus spoke only out of prayer as the source of faith's power and the means to find strength. The disciples were tempted to believe that, that the gift that they had received from Jesus was in their control and, and, and that, that, that it would be exercised at their disposal. Oh my goodness. We can never be a people where we think that we know more than God. And that sounds so ridiculous, but how often do we make choices and respond and live accordingly? And he goes on and he says this, this was a subtle form of unbelief. For it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than God. Ched Myers says, what is prayer? Prayer is to pray. To pray is to learn to believe in a transformation of self and world which seems empirically impossible, as in moving mountains. What is unbelief but the despair dictated by the dominant powers that nothing can really change? A despair that renders revolutionary vision and practice impotent. The disciples are instructed to battle this impotence, this temptation to resignation through prayer. As, we, uh, as the worship team comes this morning, and as we reflect on this text, I am so grateful as I look at this text that Jesus came and he heard the demands, he heard the anxiety, the anxiousness of his father, the requisition of this father on behalf of his child. I am thankful and grateful that he heard that man's prayer, that he heard that man's requisition. I am grateful that Jesus acted and healed the young man 
with the, with, the devil, with, the, with the evil spirit. But this morning as I reflect on that, and as we begin to, un, to conclude our services here this morning, we need to understand and be a people that when we come to God, that we trust Him with who He says He is. That God is in covenant with us. We are the ones that are the covenant breakers, but God never breaks His covenant with us. That if we come with faith, that He will hear our prayers. That He will move accordingly to His purposes. And oh, we need to understand and take as a learning experience that the disciples, when they take things into their own hands and think that going through the motions, if you will, of praying and going through the motions of, of asking that this young man be healed and they're more concerned about the approval of man, oh church, we're in trouble if we allow that to be the very thing that leads us as we journey through life. God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way, the truth, and the life. Amen, church.